welcome to the Ninth Circle of Hell. Today's topic, serial killers you probably haven't heard of. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Ninth Circle of Hell with Mad Mac. And I'm going to be discussing three different serial killers you probably haven't heard of. The first one, Angel Resendez, or The Railway Killer is one of his other names. The one after that, Robert Hansen, the Alaskan serial killer. And finally, Richard Chase, the vampire killer. So let us begin. Angel Resendez. A serial killer, serial rapist, who used train cars to evade police, earning him the name, The Railway Killer. Resendez was born as Angel Leoncion Reyes Resendez in Isucar de Matamoros, Mexico, on August 1st, 1960, and was physically small. His mother, Virginia Resendez de Matarino, never married his father and frequently abused him physically. At the age of six, he was sent to live with his maternal uncle who raped him and was also sexually assaulted by a local pedophile. At the age of 11, he ran away from home and spent some time living on the street where he took up sniffing glue. At the age of 16, he tried to enter Texas, but was deported. It became the first of his many entries into the United States. In 1988, he spent some time living in St. Louis, where he worked for a temp agency. In adulthood, he spent a total of 11 years in American prisons for crimes such as assault, auto theft, firearm possession, and burglary. After finishing each sentence, he would be deported back to Mexico, only to return every time. At the time of his arrest, he was married to a woman named Juliet Dominguez Reyes, with whom he had a daughter named Leria. Resendez's first known murder occurred in 1986 when he killed a homeless woman and her boyfriend. Resendez found his victims, all of whom were randomly picked. While traveling by stowing away on trains, they were attacked, sometimes through burglaries, near the railways, and were usually bludgeoned to death with some incidental object. A few female victims were also raped, though it was usually only on a secondary intent. After the murders, he would spend some time in their houses. He also took jewelry, cash, valuables, and other items and gave them to his wife in Mexico. Most victims were found covered with something or obstructed from view in some other way. In 1991, he committed his first known murder on U.S. soil, killing 33-year-old Michael White in Kentucky by beating him to death with a brick. Over the course of the following eight years, he continued traveling by train in the U.S., during which time he killed at least a dozen people. Resendez also claimed to have killed seven additional people in Mexico. Resendez was also a suspect in the 1998 murder of 81-year-old Fanny Whitney Byers in Carl, Georgia, 
but was never convicted of it since a couple was charged. In addition, authorities suspected him of being the perpetrator of numerous female homicides in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, due to his strong family ties in the area. When the crimes were connected forensically and by VCAP, a manhunt started. He was nicknamed the Railway Killer because all of the killings occurred near train tracks. In June of 1999, after being identified as the killer, he was placed in the top 10 of FBI's most wanted list and a reward of $50,000, which just some days later was raised to $125,000. The same month, a Texas Ranger, Drew Carter, contacted Manuela, Resendez's sister who lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and to whom he was close. He promised her that Resendez would be granted personal safety in jail, regular visitation rights for his family, and a psychological evaluation. At the time, he had been tracked down to Mexico. After the promised deal was put into writing, the sister convinced him to turn himself in to the U.S. authorities. On July 13th, Resendez met with Drew Carter and surrendered himself. He was tried for first-degree murder with damning evidence to back the charges up, found guilty, and sentenced to death. On June 27, 2006, he was executed by lethal injection in Huntsville, Texas at the age of 45. His last words were, I want to ask if it is in your heart to forgive me. You don't have to. I know I allowed the devil to rule my life. I just ask you to forgive me and ask the Lord to forgive me for allowing the devil to deceive me. I thank God for having patience in me. I don't deserve to cause you pain. You do not deserve this. I deserve what I am getting. Next is Robert Hansen the Alaskan serial killer who liked to hunt his victims like animals. In the 1924 short story, The Most Dangerous Game, author Richard Connell recounts the tale of a wealthy Russian aristocrat who was bored with trapping animals, so he lures a big game hunter to his island and hunts him for sport. Ever since the story was published, the perverse idea of humans hunting humans has captivated people. The disturbing concept has appeared time and time again in the plots of novels, TV shows, and movies. But for the most part, it has remained on the pages of fiction. However, in the 1970s, Robert Hansen, also known as the Alaskan Serial Killer or Butcher Baker, Turn this premise into a horrifying, decade-long reality. Though Hansen maintained a wholesome reputation in the town, he let his hidden dark side run wild in the woods of Alaska. Throughout the 70s and early 80s, Hansen targeted sex workers and exotic dancers, abducting these women to turn them loose in the woods so he could hunt them like animals. This is the terrifying true story of the Butcher Baker serial killer. Unlike his fictional counterpart, Robert Hansen was no aristocratic nobleman, 
born on February 15, 1939, in Esterville, Iowa. His father was a Danish immigrant who owned a bakery. He was also a strict disciplinarian. Hansen's childhood was not an easy one. He worked for long hours in the bakery from a young age. Though he was naturally left-handed, he was forced to use his right hand instead, a switch that resulted in a lifelong stutter. As a teenager, he was painfully shy and had bad acne and was mocked for his stutter. The boys at his school made fun of him, and the girls he liked rejected him. He was often described as a loner. As a social outcast, he took refuge in time spent alone. Over time, he became an avid game hunter, channeling his rage and fantasies of vengeance into the sport of stalking animals. In 1957, when he was 18 years old, Hansen joined the United States Army Reserve, hoping to leave behind his troubled youth and make something for himself. For a while, he did. After serving a year in the reserves, he became an assistant drill instructor in Pocahontas, Iowa, and even married a young woman he met there. But Hansen still felt mistreated by the community and sought retaliation. In 1960, at the age of 21, he convinced a young bakery employee to help him burn down a school bus garage. When the boy later confessed, Hansen was arrested. His wife divorced him, leaving him alone and incarcerated. Though he was released just 20 months into his three-year sentence for arson, he was jailed a few more times afterwards for petty theft. Still, he managed to remarry to another local woman. Finally, Hansen decided he had enough of the continental United States. In 1967, he moved to Anchorage, Alaska, which was about as far from his life in Iowa as he could get. He moved into a small community, had two children with his wife, and settled into a quiet life. He was well-liked and opened up a small bakery. But while the townspeople mostly bought into the facade of the happy baker with a quiet family and a knack for hunting, some cracks showed through Hansen's squeaky-clean exterior. In 1972, he was arrested twice, once for the abduction and attempted rape of a housewife, and again for raping a prostitute. Unknown to authorities, his killing spree began in 1973, likely emboldened by his ability to walk free after those early rapes. The year of 1976 saw Hansen arrested again and sentenced to five years for shoplifting a chainsaw. However, he appealed that sentence and was released. While he continued to prey on strippers and sex workers who he forced to act out his twisted fantasies. In 1983, more than a decade after Hansen moved to Anchorage, a 17-year-old girl named Cindy Paulson was found running frantically down 6th Avenue, barefoot and handcuffed. After being picked up by a driver and returned to safety, Paulson a prostitute, told her story to police. She described being held hostage by a man 
who'd handcuffed her to his car and held her at gunpoint and took her to his house where he chained her by the neck. The man raped and tortured her repeatedly before attempting to load her onto a plane and take her to his cabin in the Matanuska Sustina Valley, about 35 miles north of Anchorage. As the man prepared the plane for takeoff, Paulson managed to escape, leaving her shoes behind as evidence. Hansen fit the description of the kidnapper perfectly. Paulson even described his stutter and identified his plane. But police were still reluctant to bring him in. After all, though he was no stranger to trouble with the law, the local baker was well-liked in the community. Hansen admitted that he had met the girl, but claimed she was setting him up because he had refused to pay her her extortionate demands. When he told police about his strong alibi provided by a friend, he was released. Meanwhile, Alaska state troopers were convinced a serial killer was on the loose. Several sex workers and dancers had gone missing, and troopers were beginning to find bodies. When two bodies were discovered in the Matanuska Sustina Valley, along with the 223 shell casings nearby, Hansen was a prime suspect, but the police needed proof. This led to the involvement of the FBI, including now retired FBI agent John Douglas, who helped pioneer the field of criminal profiling and whose story is depicted in the Netflix series. Mindhunter. Douglas put together a psychological profile of the killer based on the details of the case and the injuries inflicted on the recovered bodies. He theorized that the killer was an experienced hunter with low self-esteem and a history of being rejected by women, and that he likely had a stutter. Though he had been cleared several times before, there was no doubt about it. Hansen fit the profile almost exactly. What's more, he owned a bush plane and a cabin in the Matanuska Sustina Valley. The police soon obtained a warrant to search Hansen's plane, car, and home. What they found shocked them. The horror that Hansen's victims had endured was almost too much to believe. In Anchorage, Hansen was a respected business owner known for his skill as a bow hunter. The den in his home was decorated with hunting trophies and animals mounted on the walls, and he even set a few bow hunting records. But what no one knew is that for more than a decade, the hunter had also been collecting trophies from another kind of kill. Hansen mainly targeted sex workers and exotic dancers from around Anchorage. He would kidnap the women and either drive them or fly them in his private bush plane out to his cabin in the remote Alaskan bush. If the women didn't put up a fight, he would rape them and bring them back to town, threatening them into secrecy. But those who did not cooperate suffered a truly nightmarish fate. Out in the wilderness, his favorite location was along the Nick River. Hansen would set women free, 
For a moment, they'd have hope that there was a chance to escape. Then, as they ran for their lives, he would track them down, taking his time, hunting them like wild animals. Armed with a hunting knife and a .223 caliber Ruger Mini-14 rifle, he'd torture the women with this chase for hours or sometimes days at a time until he located his prey and shot them like game. The story of Hansen's horrific 12-year killing spree later became the subject of the 2013 movie Frozen Ground, starring John Cusack as Robert Hansen and Nicolas Cage as the Alaskan state trooper investigating the murders. While searching Hansen's home, police found an aviation map of the area hidden in the headboard of his bed. It was marked with tiny X's, denoting the kill and burial sites of his victims. Some of the X marks matched up where the police had found bodies. There were 24 X's in all. What's more, in his psychological profile of the killer, Douglas had predicted that the murderer would keep souvenirs from his prey. Sure enough, in the basement of Hansen's home, police found a stash of jewelry. In the stash was a necklace that belonged to one of the victims. Faced with the evidence in 1984, Hansen confessed to murdering 17 women and raping another 30 women over a 12-year period. Hansen was sentenced to 461 years plus life in prison without parole in 1984. He was imprisoned at Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward, Alaska, where he died in 2014. As part of a plea bargain, the butcher baker was only ever charged with four of the 17 murders he confessed to and some believe he actually killed more than 20 women. In exchange for the reduced conviction, Hansen agreed to assist police in locating the remaining bodies plotted on his kill map. Unfortunately, five of the bodies still have not been found to this day, and Hansen took the secret of their location to his grave. Next, we have Richard Chase, a serial killer whose tendency was to drink the victim's blood, earning him the name, The Vampire Killer. Richard Chase was one disturbed serial killer. Technically, all serial killers are disturbed, but there's a sliding scale, and Richard Chase, the Vampire of Sacramento, is strongly on one side. He lived his life under a series of powerful delusions that had fatal consequences. Chase made the papers when he killed and mutilated the bodies of six victims in Sacramento, California, in the late 70s. Given his nickname, it doesn't come as much of a surprise that Richard Chase's trademark was drinking the blood of his victims after he killed them. But believe it or not, Drinking his victim's blood wasn't even the vampire killer's most disturbing trait. Richard Chase showed signs of mental illness at a young age, 
But his father, a strict and sometimes physically abusive parent, did little to help him. Chase was disturbed and unhappy as a child, and his symptoms grew worse in adolescence. He set several small fires, frequently wet the bed, and displayed signs of cruelty towards animals. These three habits are sometimes called the McDonald Triad, or the Triad of Sociopathy, proposed by the psychiatrist J.M. McDonald in 1963 as a predictor of sociopathy in patients. Chase's problem grew worse when his father allegedly kicked him out of the house. Without supervision, Chase turned to alcohol and drugs, which quickly turned into substance abuse. Psychotropic drugs exacerbated the symptoms of his illness, like the vampire whose moniker he would soon adopt. He became convinced on several occasions that his heart had stopped. At times, he thought he was a walking corpse. But being occasionally dead was no reason to neglect his health. Fearing that he lacked vitamin C, he reportedly pressed whole oranges to the skin of his forehead, believing that his brain would absorb the nutrients directly. One of his strangest and most powerful delusions involved his skull. He felt that his cranial bone had split apart and begun to shift beneath his skin, changing places and jumbling like puzzle pieces. He shaved his head in an effort to monitor their movements. Unsurprisingly, at the age of 25, Chase was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and institutionalized in 1975 to prevent him from becoming a danger to himself. His fascination with blood earned him the nickname Dracula among the psychiatric hospital's assistants who witnessed him kill and attempt to drink the blood of several birds in an effort to staff off the effects a poison that was, he imagined, slowly turning his own blood to powder. It was his attempt to inject himself with rabbit's blood, which made him violently ill, that had resulted in his institutionalization. In spite of several similar incidents, the staff believed that they had rehabilitated Chase, and he was released to live with his mother. It was a fatal decision, as Chase's condition wasn't improving. He was growing worse. Though Richard Chase had been released into his mother's care, there was nothing legally binding that forced him to stay with her. Not long after his release from the psychiatric hospital, he moved out, later saying he thought his mother was poisoning him. He moved into an apartment that he shared with a group of young men he called friends. But it seems they didn't know Chase well. And when he persisted in unusual behavior, notably drug abuse that left him constantly high and a proclivity from walking around the apartment without any clothing, they asked him to leave. Richard Chase, however, refused. And it seemed the path of least resistance to his sometime roommates to abandon the apartment and find other lodging. Chase was once again living on his own a circumstance that almost always exacerbated the symptoms of his condition. 
his fascination with blood resurfaced, and he began capturing and killing small animals. He would eat them raw or blend their organs with soda and drink the mixture. In August of 1977, Nevada police found him late one night in the Lake Tahoe area, covered in blood and carrying a bucket with a liver in the back of his pickup. Since they determined the blood and organ belonged to a cow, not a human, they let Chase go. Yet again, Richard Chase slipped through the cracks in the system that could have helped him and protected others. As it was, alone, with no one to watch him or rein him in, he fell more deeply under the power of his delusions, until finally they prompted him to do the unthinkable. On December 29, 1977, Richard Chase was frustrated and lonely. His mother hadn't allowed him to come home for Christmas. He would later recall his violent anger. Ambrose Griffin, a 51-year-old man who was helping his wife bring in groceries, became his first victim. While driving by their street, Chase pulled out a 22 caliber pistol and shot him in the chest. It was the beginning of an obsession. On January 23, 1978, Chase entered the home of Teresa Wallen, who was pregnant. Through her unlocked front door, he felt he would say during interrogations that an unlocked front door was a kind of invitation to him, a justification for what happened next. From that time on, all of his victims were people who had left their door unlocked. Richard Chase shot Teresa Wallen three times using the same gun he used to shoot Griffin. Chase proceeded to stab her with a butcher knife before cutting out her organs and drinking her blood. He reportedly used a yogurt container as a cup. Chase's final murders were the most gruesome of all. On January 27, 1978, just four days after Wallen's murder, Chase found Evelyn Maroth's door unlocked. Inside were her six-year-old son and her 22-month-year-old nephew and a friend named Dan Meredith. Meredith was murdered in the hallway, dead by a gunshot wound to the head. Evelyn and her son were found in Evelyn's bedroom. The little boy had been shot in the head twice. Evelyn was partially cannibalized. Her stomach was cut open and she had multiple organs missing. There was also a failed attempt to remove one of her eyes and her corpse had been sodomized. The baby, whom Evelyn had been babysitting, was missing from the scene of the crime. The child's decapitated corpse was found months later behind a church. The story of what happened that night emerged during Chase's trial. The knock of a visitor had startled Sacramento's vampire killer, who took Ferreira's body and fled via Meredith's stolen car. The visitor alerted a neighbor, who then called the cops. The authorities were able to identify Chase's prints in Maroth's blood. 
when the police searched Chase's apartment, they found that his utensils were stained with blood and his fridge contained human brains. Chase was arrested. The sensational trial of the Vampire of Sacramento began on January 2, 1979, and lasted five months. The defense attorneys rejected the suggested death penalty on the grounds that Chase was not guilty by reason of insanity. In the end, after five hours of deliberation, the jury took the side of the prosecution. Richard Chase, the vampire killer, was found guilty on six counts of murder and sentenced to death by gas chamber. His fellow inmates, aware of his crimes, were frightened by him. They often encouraged him to kill himself. Richard Chase did just that, stockpiling the anti-anxiety medicine he was offered by the jail staff until he had enough for a fatal dose. He was found dead in his jail cell the day after Christmas in 1980. Thanks everybody for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to those stories. I know I enjoyed reading them. I'm going to put the source material in the description. That way you guys can look and read yourself if you'd like. I know they had some interesting pictures and articles. The last thing I would want to talk about on this episode is just mental health. And everybody or anyone out there suffering from mental health issues or know anybody with mental health issues, please don't be afraid to get some help. Call a hotline. Go to the doctor, I think is a big thing. Because, I mean, everybody's family can't be perfect. So get on the medication or go talk to a therapist, whatever you got to do. But please stay thinking outside the circle. If you have any questions, comments, ideas, please send them to OutsideTheCircle23 at Yahoo.com. You can follow us at OutsideTheCircle on YouTube, OutsideTheCircle23 on Instagram or TikTok. I've been posting videos on TikTok fairly frequently, so if you want to keep up to date with what we're doing, um, that'd be great. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. Peace.